This message is presented to you by Pastor James Moore and New Life Community Church in Kansas City, Missouri. For more information or to donate, please visit newlifekc.com. You ever heard of pedestrianism? Pedestrianism. Well, back before football was popular, before baseball was thought of as America's pastime, the sports craze that swept our nation was competitive walking. It was called pedestrianism. Huge crowds would pack indoor arenas in the late 1800s to watch the best walkers walk. <laughs> One way to think about it is it's like a, a six-day NASCAR race on feet. In these events, people would walk 600 miles in six days. They were on the track almost continuously. They'd have little cots set up inside the track where they would nap maybe a total of three hours a day. But generally, for around 21 hours a day, they were in motion walking around the track. Now, the reason these races lasted six days, and that's only all, was because back in those days, public amusements were prohibited on Sundays in our nation. So beginning right after midnight on Sunday night or Monday morning, the walkers would set off and just keep on walking until, right up until midnight the following Saturday. Can you imagine walking 600 miles in six days? It's crazy. Now, I somewhat understand the pace because when I was 13 years old, me and some friends of mine decided we were going to take a 50-mile hike. And we did. We walked 50 miles in just under 12 hours. But I can assure you, we were not ready to walk another 50 that day. <laughs> we weren't ready to walk another five. Anyway, a few decades after my 50-mile hike, I find myself once again interested in distance competition when my daughter qualified for state in cross country and on her high school 3,200-meter relay team. Then fast forward 10 more years to when my son, Alex, was a teenager, and he discovered distance running. Over the past 20-plus years, in addition to being a pastor here at church, Alex has been involved in running either as an athlete or as a coach. He set his high school cross-country record in 2002, and since then he's coached. He actually coached the runner who broke his record, and he's now coaching a high school sophomore who broke that record. Now, for you who may not know, a high school cross-country course is typically 5,000 meters or around three miles. But after high school, the distances can vary, with some courses being even twice that long. And that was the case back in 1994 when 128 runners, if you've never been to a cross-country race, that's, there's a bunch of them in there, 128 runners lined up to compete in the NCAA cross-country championships in Riverside, California. It was a 10,000-meter course, which is about six miles. But this, and they're, they're not walking, these guys are running. But this course was unfortunately not marked very well. And as a result, only five of the 128 runners stayed on the correct path. 
Now, Mike DeCalvo, he was the first runner to notice the problem. And so he began waving at the other runners to follow him. But most of them refused. And I, I guess you can't really blame them. Anyway, 123 runners took the wrong path and disqualified themselves. Only five took the right one. And what did the 123 think of Mike DeCalvey, who was mostening them? They thought he was wrong, and they thought they were right. And they ridiculed him for going the right way. Hey, we all like to think we're on the right path, don't we? What a rude awakening it would be to discover we're not. As I grew up, I believed I was on the right path. I assumed I was on my way to heaven. After all, I believed in God, went to church regularly. I had even prayed the sinner's prayer on more than one occasion. Well, our text for today is found in the 13th chapter of Luke, where we find Jesus going through the towns and villages. He's teaching. He's healing. And someone comes up and asks him and says, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Now, what, what do you think prompted that question? Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? I wonder, did, did the questioner want to make sure that he himself was on the right path? Or, or, or maybe did he ask out of a sense of compassion for the lost? I don't know. Or did he just want to feel superior to his neighbor? Hey, Jesus, who's in? Uh, who's out? Who's got the seal of approval? I think our current craze for reality television shows that this may demonstrate our, our desire to pass judgment on other people. The most popular types of reality shows, as you know, have typically been the ones in which someone gets eliminated each week. Right? Who gets voted off the island? Who gets the boot on Dancing with the Stars? Did you call in and vote for your favorite America's Got Talent comp competitor? Who will win the voice this season? Who's on the right path and who's on the wrong one? There's no fellow, uh, excuse me, an old story about a fellow who went to his pastor and he said, uh, he said, Pastor, a tornado came and wiped out my house. And the pastor said, Well, I'm not surprised. You know, I've been warning you. Punishment was inevitable considering the way you live. The fellow then added, he said, well, pastor, it, it destroyed your house too. <laughs> and the pastor said, it did. Uh, well, you know, sometimes the ways of the Lord are beyond our understanding. <laughs> We're all tempted to judge our neighbor, aren't we? We like having an easy formula to decide who measures up. The Jews are going to make it, but not the Gentiles. The wealthy are blessed by God, but not the poor. The healthier in, illness is out. Smoking is worse than wearing fur. Wearing fur is worse than cheating on your taxes. Cheating on your taxes is worse than taking home office supplies. Yeah, we've all got our own standard by which to judge others. And that's why this guy talking to Jesus, he wanted to nail down the truth. 
He wanted a clear yes or no. Now, some theologians believe that this man asked the question because he had been watching Jesus. He'd been watching him teaching the crowds of people over the past few days. And he noticed that a lot of the people who received inspiration and received healing, they went right back to their towns, went right back to their families and their jobs. He, he had, he'd seen that only a few actually gave up their old lives and began to follow Jesus. And so he asked the question, which ones are worthy of salvation? Which ones aren't? Now notice how Jesus answered the question. I, I find it very interesting that he didn't lay out a list of specifications. Instead, what he did was he made each one of his listeners examine their own hearts first. And if you will, I'd like for you to follow along as I read the entire passage from Luke 13. It goes like this. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. And someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And he said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, please open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you came from. And then you will say, hey, we ate and we drank with you. And you taught in our streets. And he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. And there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. Now, I submit that there are two mistakes that are so easy to make with this passage. One is to ignore its central message. The other is to use the message to pound on other people. Now let's remember, these verses are talking about God's judgment, not our judgment. We have no place of judging one another. For when we do that, we're putting ourselves in the role of God. Jesus himself said, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? I mean, we're not responsible for other people. So we're not to judge him. We are, however, responsible to God for ourselves, aren't we? I mean, a holy, holy, holy God bought us. You ever think of that? He bought us. He, he sent his only son to pay our sin debt, which means we are no longer our own. We now 
belong to him. And if our lives belong to God, then we should live by God's standards, right? And since he's the one who created us, and since he's the one who saved us, doesn't it stand to reason that he's the one who gets to make the rules? He is the one to decide what's right and what's wrong, not us. One morning, a man went to a pastor asking for prayer, for physical healing. And of course, the pastor wanted to pray for him. But something about this man set off his internal warning system. So he asked the man if he was a Christian. And the man replied that he had been going to church for years. In fact, he attended several churches, flitting to whichever one suited him the best. He wanted to make sure he didn't miss anything, so he didn't want to go to one church. I go to a lot of churches so I can get all the stuff. Well, the pastor noticed a woman standing nearby and asked the man if that was his wife. And he answered, no, no, uh, not my wife. She's my girlfriend. But we do live together. See, the man explained. He said, see, Pastor, she and I have a special love relationship that the Lord understands. Well, at this point, you see the pastor had to confront the man. I mean, he was claiming to be a Christian and yet saw nothing wrong with disobeying God's command to refrain from sex outside of marriage. And here he was expecting God to hear his prayer and bless him with the healing, and yet he didn't want to live by God's rules. So that pastor had to break the news to him that God doesn't work that way. God's word tells us that unconfessed sin stands between us and God and will hinder our prayers, he told him. Therefore, if you expect to receive an answer to your prayer, you need to confess your sin and you need to turn from it. Now, I imagine some of you, if you're honest, feel that what that pastor said was just a little bit harsh. And you think that pastor should have been a little bit softer. He should have been a little bit more sensitive with this man. But you see, I see it differently. I think he was, the pastor was extremely loving. We do no favors to anyone when we water down the truth about God. See, the uncomfortable truth that many people seem confused about is that real love requires real sacrifice. Love that makes no demands on the lovers is not really love at all. You know what it is? It's codependence. And some people think that's love. So here, what I'm saying right now, we cannot choose our own path in life and still remain in a right relationship with God. 
Jesus says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Now, it would be unkind to talk about God's judgment without also talking about God's love. Amen? And in Ephesians 3.18, the Apostle Paul writes to the believers in Ephesus, and he prays that they will be able to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ, and to know that this love surpasses knowledge. And in 2 Peter 3.9, we're assured, assured that the Lord does not want anyone, not anyone to perish. He wants everyone, all, to come to repentance. You see, just when we have, we think we have the saints and the sinners all sorted out into their own separate boxes. Jesus comes along <laughs> and he praises a tax collector and spends an afternoon with the Samaritan woman. What I'm saying is we should never allow ourselves to judge others because God's love is wide enough to draw in the people that we would never accept. However, let me also provide some balance on this subject. I remember years ago, some of you may remember this, it was in the news, a congregation in Oklahoma cut off fellowship with a woman because of her immoral lifestyle. And when she filed a lawsuit against the church, man, the story made all the national news media. And one of the programs to give the lawsuit coverage was the Phil Donahue show. How, how many remember Phil Donahue? He, he had a television talk show before Oprah Winfrey had hers. Anyway, I remember that the attitude of Donahue and most of his audience regarding the woman who had been removed from her church could be summed up in Jesus' words from Matthew 7, 21. Judge not that you not be judged. And I must say, that it bothers me to hear someone use Matthew 7-1 that way. Although I guess it is nice <laughs> to have a verse to prove what you already want to believe. I mean, this is how the verse has so often been used. It's been used to convey the idea, listen, listen, you live your lifestyle, I'll live mine. But don't you tell me how to live, and certainly don't you try to impose your standards of morality on me. Judge not that you not be judged, that you be not judged. Man, that's spouted by people who have no earthly idea what Jesus meant by that. I'll go even further and say that the people who quote this verse the most are the ones who understand it the least. It just happens to fall into line with the spirit of our time. For example, a teenager is at odds with her parents because they've laid down the rules that she can't go out with a certain boy because they don't think it would be good for her spiritual development. So what does she do? She storms out of the room and screams, judge not that you be not judged. And slam goes the door. 
And she doesn't feel that she's been disrespectful at all because she told her parents biblically. <laughs> or some student gets drunk, has to be disciplined on a Christian college campus, and immediately his friends rally around and suddenly become very biblical, saying, Judge not that you be not judged. See, I think one of the key the keys of un to understanding what Jesus meant by judge not can be found in his Sermon on the Mount. And uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness far surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, we must have a different kind of righteousness from what the scribes and Pharisees had. They wore theirs for show. Their righteousness was superficial. Ours, however, must grow out of a heart that's committed to the Father. For you see, we find two extremes with this problem of judgment. The first extreme is a harsh, critical spirit. Which, and with that, we look down in self-righteous judgment on one another, on another sinner. Obviously, we have no place of doing this because how many have sinned? All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. So we have no place of doing that. But the second extreme is not critical spirit. The other extreme is permissiveness. We must remember that the command for us to not judge others does not mean that we deny or don't see the sinful actions. We must still recognize sin as sin. And we should never, ever overlook it. We should never excuse it. In fact, any attempt to overlook sin or justify it on any grounds, well, that's sinful in itself. So we need to avoid both extremes. I was shocked. Confused, bewildered as I entered heaven's door. Not by the beauty of it all, nor the lights or its decor. But it was the folks in heaven who made me sputter and gasp. The thieves, the liars, the sinners, the alcoholics, and the trash. There stood the kid from seventh grade who swiped my lunch money twice. And next to him was my old neighbor who never said anything nice. Bill who I always thought was rotting away in hell, was sitting pretty on cloud nine, looking incredibly well. I nudged Jesus. Hey, what's the deal? I'd love to hear your take. How'd all these sinners get up here? There must be some mistake. And why is everyone so quiet, so somber? Give me a clue. Hush, child, Jesus said. They're all in shock. No one thought they'd be seeing you. <laughs> Remember what Jesus said. There are those who will be first and first who will be last. There's two vitally important messages here. Examine your own heart to make sure you're right with God. And number two, don't spend Time judging other people's sins. Never forget, God's love 
is wide enough and great enough to reach anyone, even the people we reject, the people we condemn. True story, Eddie Charles Spencer grew up in a pitifully poor family in Hollandale, Mississippi. And Eddie's shame at being poor and his frustration over his family circumstances, that created a great anger in him. And he began lashing out at the world. As a kid, he joined a local gang that engaged in petty stealing and violence. And then to further dull his anger, Eddie turned to drugs. And over the next few years, he turned to even more violent crimes. One day, at the age of 17, Eddie broke into a man's house and robbed him at gunpoint. The man, the victim, calmly responded to Eddie. He said, you can have the money, but what you really need is to give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And those words seemed to imprint themselves on Eddie's brain. And anyway, later that same year, he got caught. And he was convicted and sentenced to 10 years in Mississippi's Parchman Penitentiary. But that just made him angrier. And so he continued his violence while he was in prison. Then one day, as Eddie was contemplating murdering two of his fellow inmates, he says he heard God speaking to him. Eddie, it's either your way or my way, the voice said. And Eddie realized that God was challenging him to either continue on his own violent path or to choose to let Jesus rule over his life. And right then, the words of the man he'd robbed so many years ago popped into Eddie's head. You can have the money, but what you really need is to give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that day, Eddie Spencer gave his life to Christ. Praise the Lord. And after Eddie was released from prison, he traveled all over the country speaking to school children about the dangers of drugs and gangs. In fact, in 1990, he was asked to serve on the Presidential Drug Task Force. And then a few years ago, Eddie Spencer returned to his hometown in Mississippi to live among the people he had once terrorized. Eddie is a living testament in his community of God's power to redeem a life. Now, as we close this morning, let's notice Jesus' example. In John 8, he's confronted by a mob pushing a woman that was caught in the act of adultery. Now, the mob is trying to use her as if she were a, a thing Use her in order to trap Jesus. According to, see, according to Jewish law, she must die. But the Roman law said she couldn't die, couldn't be killed without their permission. Now, there was never, listen, any doubt, no doubt about her guilt. No, nor was there any doubt to the seriousness of her action. So just what was it that Jesus did when he was confronted with this sinner? Well, first, he refused to look down on her. 
and he would not allow the mob to treat her as an object. Rather, he forced the mob to consider their own sin. But secondly, and don't miss this, he never justified her behavior. He didn't refer to her action as anything except sin. And he then forgave her and challenged her to stop sinning. You see, repentance is the signpost that points to the narrow path that Jesus talked about. And Jesus Christ is the key that opens the door to the kingdom of God. Listen, it's not our sins that separate us from God. It's our stubbornness. God delights in forgiving our sins. He delights in bringing us back into the love that surpasses knowledge. So if you're hearing me today, and you've not yet chosen to follow Jesus, now is the time to make that choice. Will you bow your head? And before I pray, I want to ask, do you want to surrender your life to Christ? Do you want the love that only God can give? Well, you can have it simply by trusting him more than you trust yourself. I can assure you that he loves you more than you can know, and he wants you to have a life that's more than you could ever imagine. So if you want that life, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand so I'll know who you are. And then after we dismiss, I'm going to take a few minutes to help you. Will you do it? If you'd like to have eternal life from a loving God, please lift your hand and look at me right now. See your hands? Thank you. Now for the rest of us. Maybe you realize this morning that you've been guilty of judging others. That someone in your life actually was sinning. But rather than loving and understanding, your spirit's been one of judgment, condemnation. Now, if that's you, will you confess that by simply raising your hand so I can see it? I have been guilty of sometimes judging others. Thank you. Thank you for your honesty. God bless you. Lord, you've seen our hands raised this morning, confessing our sin and acknowledging our need of you. Please forgive us, I pray. We willingly submit to you as our master and receive the life that only you can give. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. For more information, please visit newlifekc.com.